a fear of losing your dignity would be the thing that stood between me, the life I live, and the unlived life within me. It'd be a fear of losing my dignity and appearing like a fool. Most of us have two lives. The life we live and the unlived life within us. Nothing's perfect and there's going to be a price for everything. What's the point if you're not really feeling it? Welcome to The Resistance, featuring meaningful conversations. We live in a condition of a constant murmuring. Like, that just doesn't happen for anyone. That explore that very space between who we are and who we say we want to be. I'm your host, Matt Connor. At some point over the last 30-odd years of writing, recording, and releasing music, Alastair McLean got over himself. Now, the timelines here can be fuzzy, and exact moments aren't so important anyway. What matters is that there was a point in his creative journey as the principal songwriter, vocalist, and guitarist for the clientele, in which he simply stopped caring about the perceptions of others. For years, McLean says the battle was about dignity, about not making a fool of himself via his musical choices. Now, after three full decades, together with bassist James Hornsey and drummer Mark Keane, the acclaimed British pop band is unashamedly following their own interests. Now, in our efforts to better understand the ways in which resistance can stymie our way forward toward our creative goals, it's conversations like this that best illuminate the path. This is the reason why I so much prefer talking to more experienced artists, because there's so much to learn from such a long and considered career in the arts. The idea that the clientele are only recently completely free to chase the music they want will sound a little odd to longtime fans who've been in love with their hazy retro pop sound for a long time. But that also means that beautiful things are still ahead. On this episode of The Resistance, Alastair McLean chronicles the journey through some of these creative lessons learned. And he also tells us how their most popular song only took 10 minutes to write. Finally, he talks about the connective tissue of the band's brand new album, I Am Not There Anymore. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Alastair McLean of The Clientele. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Resistance. My name is Matt Connor and I'm your host. Today I'm just so excited to be joined by Alistair McLean, singer, principal songwriter, guitarist of the clientele. I've been following this band for a long time, but did I get all the hats right there? Other than most pretentious member, I think you should add that as well. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but I'd let you say that. <laughs> Hey, uh, Alistair, appreciate so much you you joining the show today. Excited to chat about the new album and and really the course of the of your career. But before we dive in, I want to start where we start all of our conversations and get your response to something that I think your your music, your longevity in a career in the arts, etc., is going to be a fascinating subject for today. But let me start here. Our source material is from Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. And Alistair, he writes this. He says, most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. And between the two stands the resistance. I just wonder how that strikes you now 
and what resistance you feel, if any, or whether you even agree with that quote? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you could, you know, sound like a, a very pedantic English analytic philosopher and empty your pipe as you answered and say, well, what exactly is an unlived life? By definition, a life has to be lived. And how can a, how can a, how can an unlived life be inside you? But it's about potential, I suppose, right? Or it's about your dreams or something, you know, and how for most people they are only able to attain those in glimpses or in, in fragments as opposed to following them in a kind of, I don't know, it feels like he wants us to feel that we can follow those dreams in a happy ever after way, that there's just one thing we have to overcome. So for me, that quote doesn't really, doesn't strike a chord for me because I don't think that life is like that. You know, I think that we live lots of lives. We uh, sometimes at the same time, and sometimes it feels like we're almost different people at different times or in different years. And I don't personally understand what stops, what the resistance is. I mean, is it, is it a lack of courage or a lack of consistency or, is it a lack of talent or good looks that stops us from following on to what the happy ever after that we think about? So I think there's lots of things about it that you can pick apart, but I suppose that I do also understand what it means that, that for me, it would be a lack of courage. I think, you know, a lack of um, a fear of losing your dignity would be the thing that's, that stood between me the life I live and the unlived life within within me. It'd be a feel of a fear of losing my dignity and appearing like a fool. I think. Can you like frame that? Like in in what scenarios has that sort of taken uh, form or presented itself most clearly? I think it's happened in every scenario, including just going to the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> I think let's talk, I mean, we could talk a bit about one of the things about the new uh, record that I've just put my name to is that there are a lot of experiments on it, I suppose. There are a lot of different things that are different from the stuff I've done before. And I think that when we were recording it, I was very conscious that I didn't care anymore what people thought that it, it might be the very last thing I was going to do. And I wanted it to be reflective of what I really thought about things and, and what I really loved and the things I listened to. I wanted it to be a labor of love. And so I would start to make, you know, one of, one of the ways into that, funnily enough, was with different rhythms. So I thought, let's take a flamenco rhythm. Let's take a flamenco rhythm in 9-8 time and put something on 4-4 four, four time on top of it. And um, let's do a bossa nova song. Let's do a song that's a bit dubby let's do some beats that are almost like kind of Boys of Canada's really slack sort of slow hip hop beats over a drone. And, you know, guitar bands, white guitar bands are not famous for their mastery, their fluency and mastery of rhythms. And there was a really big, big, big chance that everyone would have pointed at us and laughed at doing it. And, I, and normally that would have stopped me from doing it. But on this occasion, I thought, I don't really care anymore. And if it's, and if I lose my dignity, well, maybe I can learn something from that. If I feel like I've made a fool of myself. 
uh, it could be a growing education experience rather than just carrying on the same old, same old all the time. So that's an example, I think, of um, how one can lose one's dignity. Has that uh, look? Uh, the clientele obviously have a you know. There's a long history here with several moments when you've been able to, you know, write, record, and then release a, an entire set of songs. And I guess I wonder within that, like that uh, that fear of of losing your dignity, has that kept you on albums past from making the music you wanted to make at some level? I don't think so. What it's done is stop us making records in between them in between those records. I think there's a really funny thing that happens with bands that where they like particular, there are particular songwriters or musicians or bands that are now almost enshrined, you know, like Brian Wilson or, or Bacharach or, or Arthur Lee or the left bank. And if you like that kind of thing and you want to make music like that, you become very self-conscious about it. You know, you, you, there's certain posts that you can't really stray beyond. It's not right. Arthur Lee wouldn't have done this, so we can't do it either. And, and it's really easy to get into that kind of mindset, um, especially a few records down the road. And it's a dignified kind of music. You know, uh, it's very elegant, dignified kind of music. Uh, and to destroy that, to take that apart a bit, it takes a bit of courage and, um, you know, it takes a bit of, let's not just do the same thing again. We've got to reinvent things. We've got to turn things inside out and put the middle in the, in the start and the start at the end. So I guess that's another example, you know, of how we, how we could have gone wrong, but I think didn't because I'm actually happy with all the records we made but we couldn't make another one the same. There was a, there was a point, I think it was in like 2011 or 12 when, when the band went on, like, like took a break. And I think at that point, you know, I like as outsider, what, you know, weren't sure, like, what is this the end? Is this the end of the clientele? I didn't like how much of what we're talking about now came into play then. All of it. I think, I mean, it was, as far as I was concerned, the end um, I wasn't interested in doing it anymore. And I thought that I felt really that um, when we started, we had a funny kind of strange sound and the songs that we had were, were written because they had to be written. It's like they kind of nagged at me and grabbed me and told me you've got to write us. And the way that we recorded, we had, so, we had a really Spartan kind of set up with a, an eight track tape recorder. And the only way we could get the vocals to sound any good was to put them through a guitar amp when the reverb turned up and then mic that guitar amp. And that was the whole early clientele sound that people really respond to. But when people talk to me about it, they, they kind of, they act or they understand, they feel that there was a choice there, but there was no choice there whatsoever because it was the only way through. It was the only way we could get the recordings to sound good. And the songs just came and wrote themselves, really. And um, and I think that that was kind of ending a bit. That was stopping a little bit towards the end, around that time, 2010, 2011. And I was really worried. I thought, I'm just going to be in, like, a guitar band. Everybody is in a guitar band. And guitar bands are boring. I want to be in a, a really special... <laughs> 
weird guitar band. Uh, and, and I didn't do any more clientele music until I was convinced that that special weird guitar band was back again. I'd love to dive into that more if you're, if you're okay with that. That, that. Yeah. Like when I hear you say that and I try to put myself in your shoes, I'm thinking that sounds terrifying. That sounds terrifying to think like if songs have always come to me in this way and always like if the muse has been pushy, so to speak, and, and the songs sort of write themselves or, or nag, nag at us to make to bring them into being if that ceases like that would just be a scary proposition like how scary was that how or or am i am i not quite understanding well i mean it's difficult thing to talk about because it makes it sound like i have delusions of grandeur but i almost feel like i didn't write those songs or any of the songs i've written I feel like they just came from from somewhere else. You know, I'm not trying to say that I'm like the the voice of the Almighty in the desert or anything like that. I mean, I'm I'm just saying that that that, that when um, when I when songs come to me, they come first as images. They're really like stained glass, really hard images with depth and light, and I can see things. And then there'll be a piece of music that seems to echo that image, and then there'll be words at the end, and that's the song. And it happens almost like in, in a trance. You know, it's not something that I ever, I don't ever sit down and say, today I want to write a song. You know, the song just comes. And um, so if that, like in a way, because it's so, it's depersonalized to such an extent that if it went away, I wouldn't really feel I'd lost anything. I just would have felt that something that had been there wasn't there anymore, like a change in weather patterns. And it wasn't scary, really. It kind of almost felt like a relief in some weird ways. It just felt like I can be like everyone else now. I'm not going to have this millstone around my neck where, you know, the, the other people don't really understand what I'm doing and the, the band is not that successful or at least not as successful as we, we hoped it would be or felt we deserved it to be, you know. And um, to be able to walk away from that would just, would just be a relief. And it was a relief for quite a few years, actually. And I, was, I made other music anyway with, with Amor de Dies, which was a, a band that I, I, I played in with, Lupe Nunez, uh, Fernando. And that was, you know, that was more fun in a way. You know, it was like a guy who did our string arrangements called Louis Philippe just came up to me one day and said, why don't we just make a record for fun? And if no one releases it, so what? And that's what we did. And, and that was a really different approach. And um, it was like a really good rest from, from those days of the clientele all the time. So I don't know, does that answer the question? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it does. I mean, there's no right answer. It's, it's your answer. I, it, it does make me wonder, like, when you describe it as that millstone, that's just not at all maybe what I would have expected there. So. <laughs> On the other side of that, like as you pick it up again, do you pick it up only if it doesn't feel like a millstone or does it still feel like that in 2023? No, it doesn't at all. It's a, it's a source of, of great joy. You know, um, music should be. Music should be a way of feeling that you're understood or that you're in sight or you can share things, you know. Um, so it shouldn't be a millstone, but it was becoming a millstone in those days, I think, because... Well, it just it just felt like we were going through the motions and repeating ourselves too much. And you see what we've done since. You may note that 
there's like I think between cl- the, the the millstone years <laughs> and the music for the edge of miracles there was seven years break and between music for the edge of miracles and this one there was six years break and what we did in those seven and six years was just have to do absolutely nothing it was to wait and sit and not try at all it was to just to wait for the right ideas to come when the ideas did come like by which I'm, by ideas i mean a song they would be recorded almost immediately and then you would you would sit back with the recording and maybe even forget that you'd done it and then a counter melody would come in for a cello like six months down the line and you'd use that and that's how the album came about just waiting waiting until good ideas came you know rather than in the traditional way of making a record jumping into a recording studio with a producer and booking it for two weeks and and seeing what you came out with at the other end that's something a young band should do i think i think once you once you get past a certain stage it's much better if you can just to wait and not put out a record for the sake of putting out a record put out a record when it's finished when there's a a string of really original um uh and good ideas on it i'm fascinated by this idea of of openness where you know you said we just wait we wait but some people would have an opposite approach to this like almost a workman like i go in i go in some room or my studio i show up i i noodle around i have voice memos i do it every day you know where, where they approach it like a like a job job so to speak yeah and there they would say, and that's how I'm open to it. I, I'm like positioned with my guitar in a creative space with hours set aside, and there the songs can come to me. But you're saying, well, we don't don't do anything. I, I, I just wait for it. If it's not there, we won't release anything. Like, like, what do you think of the workmanlike approach? Have you tried that sort of thing in the past? I, I guess I just wonder what sort of informs your particular stance. Well, I mean, it doesn't work for me, but that's not to say that it isn't valid for other people. I'm not, you know, I can only talk about what works for me. And and I know, you know, other people do things differently. But there was one time when I tried that workman-like approach. It was when, um, I think it was just after Violet Hour. No, maybe after Strange Geometry came out and we'd signed a, a publishing deal with Chrysalis, which meant that we were, like, financially secure. You know, like, there was no need to to make the rent because we we had it for a couple of years and so i stopped everything i did and i went back to my house and i sat with the guitar i think it was early spring and it was just gray and raining and i sat with the guitar and i overwrote a lot of music thought about it too much and kidded myself that the music i was making was good and just felt thoroughly depressed you know and and I would have, I really, I mean, I suppose that's what taught me in a way. Like I realized that it, it would have been much better for me just to, just to go away and do something else, to go and move to Spain or to, you know, do some kind of other job. Like, you know, Mark, bless him, the drummer, he went off and he learned to tune pianos, which was a good, a good call really with the time he had. But um, that, that, that thing of sitting and, you know, trying and trying and trying and, you know, 
rewriting and redrafting and moving things around. If you're doing that, in my experience, it's a sign that what you've got to begin with isn't all that interesting. And the really, the really best songs, they just write themselves. They just come in in the time it takes to sing them almost. You know, like the one, the song that everyone loves by the clientele, Reflections After Jane, that was, that came in 10 minutes, everything, you know. Um, so I don't know how whether hard work pays off with this kind of stuff, at least not in my case. It really sounds like the joy is the barometer. Is that, does that sound true when I say that? There is a joy in being able to communicate something powerful, to feel that you've caught something. And there is a joy in communication, isn't there? I mean, I think so anyway, but a lot of what music is about, one of the things that makes music so beautiful and so mysterious is that it can communicate things that words can't. And when you feel, when you have a strong suspicion that you've caught the thing that, or a thing that, you, that you've held in your head, like whether it's an image or a feeling as the light changes or whatever it is, and you've and it's there and, and you've caught it and you can share it oh my god that's like the best feeling in the world you know it's absolutely joyful feeling i love that i i do want to talk about the new album i am not there anymore and you mentioned you know it's been six years there was a statement that you put out with it you know in terms of press material and things where it, you said what's really been in all of our records is a sense of not actually inhabiting the moment that your body is in. And it, that just me, I've been trying to listen to the music through that filter. And I just wonder if you could expound on that. Well, I've got all these internet doctors since I said that, all diagnosing me with depersonalization or fugue states <laughs> or whatever. You know, I wish I'd never said it. It's. <laughs> It's, um, we don't have to go there if you don't want. I, it just made me very curious. No, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm glad to go there because it, it will enable me to point out the difference between a medical condition and a feeling, you know. Um, and, and I think that, that there, are, there is a feeling sometimes you get that you're, that you're not in that moment, that you're somewhere else. And it's in poetry, it's in literature, it's in... You know, it's in painting too, this, this feeling of unreality. And that definitely is something that we've always written about, and that's always been part of the band's, um, you know, something the music is trying to illustrate, something the words are trying to illustrate. And that really came together with this particular record because um, all the songs are about it. And I didn't mean them all to be about it, but they just became all about it. You know, this... It's just a, over and over again. It's you know I, I'm I'm not there and um, or you know there's so many lyrical examples of, of that sense of derealization or or, or or unreality and you know just feeling you're somewhere else. I don't know whether other people, many other people, feel that way, but I've felt that way all my life, and you know I can remember it as a as a little kid, just sort of saying, "Am I real? Am I real?" and and not really <laughs> being convinced that I was. Music can almost have that way of like carrying us to that different place. And I, I wondered if maybe that was it, but it even sounds, you know, obviously it sounds even much deeper than that. No, you're right. You're right. And that's what I should have said that, that, that music does take you outside of yourself in some mysterious way, doesn't it? Whether it's through, 
through dancing or whether it's through just listening. You know, it, it takes you somewhere else. When you're singing on, on the song Claire's Not Real and you're saying, I, I am not there anymore, but then there's this, qu- there's this question, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, there was something in me that just like leaped at that where I thought, oh, is this sort of the, the thesis? Is this the thesis of, <laughs> of I mean, you talked about like this wonderful, like you talked about the connective power of music and that's the joy. Yeah. And, you know, to me, that's the resonant power in anything I connect with is this is like someone else saying what I'm feeling, providing some sort of language or connecting in that way. Yeah. And so when I hear you saying, do you know what I mean? It was almost like that same connective tissue forming in almost a vulnerable way from you asking this audience, like, hey, is there anyone who can... (laughs) <laughs> who's with me on like where I'm at. And I, I, yeah, I guess I just wondered like putting that out there in that way is like, when I say all this, are you like, yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Or are you like, this guy's crazy? No, I'm saying, yeah, it makes sense that um, I was pleading for a diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> no, it makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, you know, it is the central theme and it's a, and it is a vulnerable question. Yeah. Does that feel vulnerable to put that out there? It does a little bit. I hadn't thought of it as being vulnerable, really, because I, I, I didn't want to, you know, going back to what we were saying at the start, I didn't want to feel undignified, you know, but I took the risk of being undignified, and being vulnerable is being undignified, isn't it? Yeah. But there's a thing, like, there's a thing that an old an old teacher of mine used to talk about called the unreal image, and it's like a... It's a psychological thing where you see an image and it seems unreal to you. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem as if it could exist, but there it is in front of you. And it's in a lot of art again, and it's in a lot of poetry. It's like the, the, the striking unreal image. And I think again, that's what, that's what I'm, I'm trying to communicate there, that, that sense of an image that it doesn't seem quite real. And, and the attempt to communicate it, to go to the bother of, making the record and recording it and, and thinking it's worth getting released. Well, that is, that's a vulnerability too, because it is an attempt to communicate in the same way. You know, it's an attempt to share it and hope that other people will feel it too. You've been listening to The Resistance. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app. And for more information or further episodes, you can find us at listentotheresistance.com. Audio production by Isaac Vining. Theme music by Jacob Patrick. My name is Matt Connor, and I'm your host. Thank you so much for listening.